Are there any how, are there any questions about the turnover last week? I'm serious. Okay. Now this is our only our third class on biblical economics. We haven't said a lot about wealth. We particularly have talked about how wealth is produced and, and the basic, the absolute basic form of wealth is the production of food. That's your basic form. If I were to ask you, just w without this class at all, what would you say is the Bible's attitude toward wealth? How is that generally understood now? What is the Bible's attitude toward wealth? Go ahead. Go ahead, honey. It's easier for a camel yeah. to go through the eye of a needle. Deep suspicion. Yeah. Yeah. Deep suspicion. If I were to ask your average Christian what the attitude, what the biblical attitude toward wealth is, avoid it at all costs because it's going to cost you eternal life. Notice we haven't seen anything like that in the Bible so far. See, what I'm doing, I'm not starting from a general teaching of the Bible about wealth. We're going to the, the actual experience of biblical people. Because the biblical, the biblical teaching on wealth came out of the experience of the people with respect to wealth. I did mention, I think, perhaps the first or second class, that the, uh, that in the, in the Bible, notice that real estate is not a good investment. I think there's a Sunday school class for the children someplace else, I think. Some other building, some other room. Oh, I see. All right. Thank you, Paul. The reason real estate is not a good investment in the Bible, from the few texts we have on it, is that you can't keep it. If you acquired it from someone else in payment of a debt or something like that, it reverts to that, that other party within 40 years. So if you actually follow the Mosaic Law, real estate is not a good investment. Now last week we considered the geopolitical situation of the Levant. If I can say that again, what happens if I buy land from somebody after 40 years and it goes back to the person I bought it from? How would they get it? It was proportioned to them during the conquest. The Israelites are given each their portion of land at the time of the conquest. Now, you're sensing there's something a little problem there, aren't you? Um, one wonders how strictly those laws were observed. But we, we'll talk about that, though. Okay. Yeah, Father Deacon, go ahead. Can you give land to someone to change the land? 
Oh, that I, that I honestly don't know. I'm sure the rabbis dealt with that someplace, but my reading of rabbinic interpretation is very limited. Now, last week we considered the geopolitical situation of the Levant near and at the beginning of the Iron Age. Let's just say through the 11th century before Christ. We saw that there was incessant tribal warfare. The Israelites, who had only recently arrived, were adjusting to an agricultural economy. There's nothing in their history that really would have prepared for them for that. God bless you. Thank you. Remember that these 12 tribes, whose parents and grandparents had been herdsmen, had never grown anything in their lives. Now they're in charge of family farms. And they had just arrived from 40 years of wandering in the desert where they had never grown anything. By the time we get to the end of the 11th century, the Israelites had only a few generations of farming. Indeed, the conquest itself was incomplete. Some areas, for example, Jerusalem, were not yet under Israelite control. Jerusalem would not fall under Israelite control until near the very beginning of, of the 10th century. Usually, you put David's conquest of Jerusalem, usually about 993, something like that. In addition, the Israelites were surrounded by other people who thought that they had no business even being in the Holy Land. It was already contested land. To the east and to the south, as we saw last week, were the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Amalekites, the Midianites, hostile people. To the southwest were the newly arrived Philistines. That's the area known as Palestine, or Philistia. Philistine, which is a European name, and these people were, in fact, Europeans. This ongoing state of war from all directions was very hard on food production. We recall that the book of Ruth begins with a famine right in the breadbasket of Judah, area known as Bethlehem, the house of bread. Famine was not uncommon in this land, which we call land flowing with milk and honey. It's not uncommon. I'm reminded of the clearly man-made famine in Ukraine right after the Bolsheviks came to power. Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe. Ukraine has always been a grain exporter. That's why it's not in the best interest of Russia 
to invade Ukraine. It's not at all in Russia's best interest. And if they do it, it's because they were forced to by other forces outside themselves. And it's not in Russia's best interest. Um, but Ukraine itself suffered a terrible famine between the fall of 1921 and the spring of 1923. Between a million and a half to two million people starved, died of starvation, and the things that accompany starvation in Ukraine. The famine came not from crop failure, but from political causes. Something like that is true also in the 11th century BC. Father? Y yes, yes. Uh, yes, yes, Chris. Go ahead, sir. Um, I don't know how well documented it is. Uh, we have some books on um, uh, the Mennonites uh, who were uh, among the, uh, well, let's say, more prodigious farmers in Ukraine uh, and who had to flee the country when the Bolsheviks came on the scene. Um, but they were the ones with the green thumbs. I didn't know that, and I appreciate you telling me that. I'm not, I just, I wasn't sure of sectarian groups in Ukraine. Uh, thank you, thank you, Chris. Now, I want to give you, I, I mentioned last week that the reason there was incessant warfare during this period of the judges, as after the conquest until the rise of the monarchy, roughly 1020, incessant warfare in the Levant. That's because of political instability. To do that, I want to have to give a brief review of Egyptian history. Because that area traditionally was ruled by Egypt. And so the fortunes of that area were very much dependent on the fortunes of Egypt. I want to start with the 19th dynasty. Okay, I put that down on your, on your, put down the dates for the dynasty. I just listed those. We're going to go back and, and we'll, we'll just fill in some details. That's all. Okay. The 19th dynasty is from 1292 BC to 1189. Everybody knows what a dynasty is. It's, 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 it's a dynasty has to do with a family ruling. Okay, I just I say that because I we tend to use it in a metaphorical sense these days, but originally that's what it means. During the nineteenth during the nineteenth dynasty, Egypt ruled the entire Levant, well up into Phoenicia and southern portions of Syria. The great the great powers in the Levant at this time were the Egyptians and the Hittites. Okay. Now the Hittites are up in the Anatolian Peninsula, a place we now call Bogaskoi, which is a, is a loop in the Halas River and Bogaskoi sits right there. That was the capital of the Hittites. When I was a young student, I was the butt of many jokes among fellow students. One of the things, one of my nicknames was the Hittite. 
because I was always walking around with books about the Hittites. <laughs> okay. And somehow that struck my classmates as terribly funny. <laughs> I don't know why. I just find Hittites quite fascinating. I even like the Hittite cap, for example, but that's, which was later picked up. We now know it as the Phrygian cap. Uh, but that, that cap originally came from the Hittites. Anyway, I didn't, I didn't sport a, a Hittite hat at the time, but I could have. So anyway, my fondness for the Hittites has been tested. <laughs> the most famous pharaoh of the 19th century was Ramses II. <laughs> okay. 12, uh, pardon me, yeah, 1279 to 1213. I'm not going to try to do anything with that, but, but according to Charlton Heston, <laughs> who seems to be an expert in all things pertaining to the, dec to the Decalogue and the Exodus, according to Charlton Heston, for those of you who are old enough to remember that movie, <laughs> uh, he is, the, he is the pharaoh of the Exodus. I'm not, I'm not going to make a case there, because the dating of the Exodus is something I don't want to get into right now, but to give you some, some perspective on the matter. The 20th Dynasty. 20th Dynasty lasts from 1189 to 1077. During this period, Egypt be, began a steady decline. Egypt lost control of the Levant because of a succession of invasions, mainly from Libya. There's all sorts of people called the Sea Peoples who appear in their, in their literature, the Sea Peoples, who were probably relatives of the Philistines. But because of this, particularly invasions from Libya, <coughs> Egypt lost control of the Levant. Now, during this same period, about 1193, the Hittite Empire also collapsed. We find Hittites all through the place. Remember, one of David's chief generals, Uriah, is a Hittite. But the Hittites have lost control of anything over on the Levant. That brings us to the 21st Dynasty. The 21st Dynasty lasts from 1069 until the mid-10th century. We'll discuss that later. Solomon was married to the daughter, we're not entirely which one, sure which one, um, which pharaoh, which daughter even, uh, we're not exactly sure, um, but remember Solomon is, ma is married to a daughter of the Pharaoh. That's in the 21st dynasty. During the 21st dynasty, Egypt was in total decline and had no direction over the Levant at all. Now the, the events narrated in the Book of, Ju books of, Book of Judges happened during the 20th and 21st dynasties. 
Because of the constant crises of the 12th and 11th centuries before Christ, there was increasing clamor among the Israelites that all the tribes should be put together as a single unit under a single political lead. Now, the government up to this point of the Israelites was tribal, particularly tribal elders, village elders. In other words, it was an extension of the family. The family. I can't. I can't do that as well as Ruth Keller can. <laughs> An extension of the family. Where is Ruth? She's not here. Uh, I've been thinking about Ruth a lot uh, this past week because Denise and I, we we rewatched the Scarlet Pimpernel. Here she comes. Is that Ruth? Yeah. Well, I'm just I'm just invoking your name in vain. <laughs> Get someplace comfortable. You know? uh, uh, when when Ruth did Don Corleone in in the book of Ruth uh, some years ago, they tell me she had only seen the movie one time. <laughs> Uh, she nailed it. <laughs> Back when I first came here, Ruth was eight. And I would call her on the phone. Say, Ruth, do it for me again. Do it for me again, Ruth. <laughs> and she said, they're seeking hell. They're seeking hell. <laughs> These Frenchies seek him everywhere. <laughs> I would just, uh, just call her and have her do that for me. You definitely coached me that. <laughs> Did I know? Let me. Look, there's a poet. Uh, after many years, I finally come, have come back to reading the Scarlet Pimpernel again. It's been decades and decades and decades ago that I read it, and it, it, it's 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 a completely different book. You know, uh, first of all, it has nothing to do with those movies. <laughs> Just. It's not at all like the movies. <laughs> um, the Scarlet Pimpernel, in, in the narrative of the Scarlet Pimpernel, the Percy Blakeney and, and the Scarlet Pimpernel, they don't appear very often. They, they come in and just when they, the one that's always there is Marguerite. Marguerite St. Just, you know, or, or Lady Blakeney. <laughs> um, that whole thing is told through her mind. I, I didn't even notice that back when I first read it. it it's, she's the heroine of the thing. She's the one you, she, everything you see is seen through her eyes. Uh, the purgation you feel is, you know, it, it's, it's, it's her passion. It's her enlightenment, it's her confusion. It's, it's, anyway, reread the Scarlet Pippa now. Okay. <laughs> uh, I don't know how I got off on that. <laughs> oh yes, they want to put somebody. They want to put all the all the tribes under one head. Okay, under one head. So you don't have these charismatic judges <clears throat> with me, or these are these tribal elders, because they can't deal with the political situation. They're being they're being destroyed. They're not, not going to produce anything, and after two hundred years of it, they've had it up to here. 
Samuel was the judge over the Israelites for a good long while. It said that all the way from Dan, which is extreme north, the town of Dan, down to Beersheba, which is the, the top of the Negev Desert, Dan to Beersheba, all of Israel knew that Daniel, that Samuel, was a was a prophet of the Lord. But he's coming; he's getting old. Is he going to be able to hand off that to his sons? Because dynastic rule is a common rule. A dynasty is an extension of family. So it's still family rule. Um, we can look at that text at the beginning of, of uh, 1 Samuel 8. Hey, Father. Yes, who so is it? Was Steve. The, yes, sir. So was the altar then in Shiloh? Where, 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 where was the center of worship? There were a number, but the, uh, if you recall, the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant was moved around quite a bit. It was often in Shiloh. Yes, Bob. So, God says the people have rejected him as king. Now, hang on. We haven't taken that yet. <laughs> I know. You've read the text before. A big advantage you have over me, Bob. Hang on to your question. It's it probably, probably a very good question, but we don't. we need to take the text first. Thanks, Bob, you understand. <laughs> when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. It's one of the places where he had his home. They said to him, you are old. I hate when people say that to me. <laughs> you are old. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Appoint a king to lead us. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. He's resistant to the idea. And the Lord told him, oh, I pray, pray to the Lord, I forgot that part. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. Now notice there, this text reflects the pushback. Pushback against having a king. Samuel will become the voice of that pushback. He takes it to God. God continues. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, <laughs> forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. 
In other words, God's saying, I'm not surprised. I've never gotten any cooperation from these people at all. Now, you're feeling what I feel. You're feeling what Moses felt. No one's ever been in charge of them before who hasn't felt the same frustration I feel with them. Now, notice there that this scene, this, this request is likened to idolatry, false gods. Now listen to them. Listen to them. But warn them solemnly. And let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Now this movement toward national unity was not without resistance. Indeed, Samuel's speech to the Israelites in the rest of 1 Samuel 8 is a recitation of all the problems they will experience from the monarchy. Observe, as we go through the text, observe that these are financial problems. As soon as you have that kind of government, you have a thing called taxation. He says, you think you're poor now? Wait till the government gets finished with you. <laughs> Monarchy, Samuel insisted, would come at a price. Let's continue with verse 10. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will force you to wear masks. <laughs> he will make you keep social distancing. He'll make you get a vaccine. <laughs> I'm following a minority of manuscripts. Not all the manuscripts have everything I just typed. But the other day, when I was in a phone booth, you know, where are you going to find a phone booth these days? <laughs> anyway, he will take your sons and make them serve with his, with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some people assigned to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. And others will plow his ground and reap his harvest. And still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. In other words, you want somebody who will lead your armies? Guess what an army is going to cost? Do you think the girls are going to be spared? No. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. I mean, the things they do really well. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. The government comes at a really big price. 
Notice here, in this consideration, or kingship will mean, the, all the reflections are about, are about wealth, about finances, about money. Your male and female servants, and the best of your livestock and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks. You notice that? That the government would take 10%. I think I think, thank you, Samuel. Haven't figured that through. He doesn't know about ninety percent. Uh, you got the, you got the picture. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not listen to you in that place. Verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us, to go out before us and fight our battles. We're tired of being beaten up by the Midianites and the Amalekites and the Edomites and the Moabites and the Philistines. We've had it with that. We want to hit back. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. Now, the next chapter I'm not going to take, about how Samuel runs into Saul. I'm not going to go through the details on that because it's, it's really not pertinent to what we're actually concentrating on, which is biblical economics. Now, Bob. <laughs> Two-part question. One was, guy was not happy with the people's response. It appeared the institution of the judges wouldn't be able to rule Israel effectively, what was the other option? I mean, it's sort of hypothetical, but... And then the other is, it seems like this was baked into God's plan because Christ comes from the line of David, the kingly line. So, it's, it's always perplexed me as, you know, God was not happy with him, but what was he thinking of? <laughs> Bob, I think maybe... Maybe the sense of perplexity Perplexity comes from some sort of internal effort on your part to reconcile the things. But I don't think they're reconcilable. You, you have both those views within the Bible. Only on, only on a very few things does the Bible have a single unified view. Only very few things. Can you elaborate when you say both views, what are those two views? Can you define them? I think, I think your father just did. The one is, God doesn't like this, right? but God must have had something else in mind. Because you, you really can't imagine Jesus as king unless you have some experience of kingship. But, but both things were there. 
but see, the line of kings and Jesus comes from the line of kings. But yet God here is not happy with the people rejecting him as king. That's how he's seeing it. But then you look at it from a human perspective, political, how was Israel going to be ruled? Sure. Um, Bob is, Bob, Joseph, go ahead. Oh, I was doing suggest we might have uh, two points of view uh, kind of being attempted to be not so much reconciled as colliding. Uh, one of them might have been more contemporary with Samuel, and the other one was the final like reconsideration of the thing when the monarchy post-David is pretty firmly established. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we joke uh, in the church, you know, we do something twice and it you no, know, first time happens, it's a horrible innovation that needs a second time is a tradition. Council. And the second time it happens, it's holy tradition going back to the apostles. And you can't change it. Yeah, but it's kind of like that. Once the kingship is there, well, you got the screen that said, well, that's what we're going to be all the time. That was the plan from the sure. beginning. But the people are there at the moment, uh, no, no, it's not a good idea. And the two of them are combined. I believe, I believe Joseph is, is, I believe he's right there. Uh, Jim, is Jim Kushner here? Um, um, but some of you were some of you were at the Touchstone Conference this past autumn. I talked about two forms of biblical biblical rhetoric. Those two forms of biblical rhetoric, in fact, represent two different ways of looking at things. And I talked about how almost anything in the Bible. If two people see it, they're going to see it from different angles. I, I spoke about, at, at that time I spoke about, for example, uh, the conquest of the land itself after the return from the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century. The prophet Haggai, Zephaniah, build that temple. Build that temple. Right away, build that temple. It takes more than 20 years to build that temple. And they wouldn't have done it if the prophets had said, it's got to be done, it's got to be done now. How is that treated in the book of Ezra? Because Ezra is not a prophet. Ezra is a scribe. He's a wise, reflective man. After the temple is built, he looks back on the building of the temple. He said, well, you know, why, why should we have built the temple? The only authority we had for rebuilding the temple came from Cyrus. Why should Cyrus get to determine these things? David's going to build a temple. But David doesn't get to build it. God will have a temple built in his own time. Now, there are two different perspectives about something about the building of the temple. One of the, one of the qualities of the prophetic voice, the prophetic mind, is right now the immediacy of the word of God in obedience. That's, that's the characteristic of the prophets. The characteristic of the wise man is, let's look at this from another perspective. Let's, let's look and balance these two things. Let's, 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 let's consider it more deeply. Both of those things are in the Bible. But they're two forms of rhetoric because they're two forms of approach to history. 
Yes. Okay. Well, I thought we'd get a bill by now, but that's fine. I got plenty of material. A crisis. Father Pat, so you're saying um, a prophet and a wise man are not necessarily the same? They're usually, they're, usually, they're rarely found in the same person. <laughs> and I was talking about that with respect to Touchstone, which is about what is Jim, uh, whatever Jim was here. Uh, I've talked about what is Touchstone to adopt? What, what line, what voice should Touchstone present? Should it be a prophetic? It's never been prophetic. Touchstone has never taken, or almost never taken, a decisive, only one or two times. We had a whole one issue called the Godless Party. There we took a prophetic stand. And we, did, we distinguished between the Democrats and the Republicans. The Democrats we called the Godless Party, the Republicans called the Almost Godless Party. <laughs> I, I think we're going to have to make way. That, that second page, we will start that next time. Don't worry about it, though. I will have your other, other copies. You don't, need to, you don't need to worry about returning this, okay? Glory to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit, now and ever. The God who is, who was, and is to come, the end of time. Amen. Thank you all so much. Amen. Amen. Thank you.